the citizens of the United States, much of Western civilization as onlookers, have experienced two hurricane-induced weather uh, challenges um, over the last two, three weeks. Hurricane Harvey in Houston, and now Hurricane Irma, which is about to make land in Florida. And obviously, as cohabitants of this planet, there are experiences which we share, which we live and, and identify with human beings who are in the path and victimized or in some way inconvenienced, threatened by these events. In particular, both of these areas house sizable Jewish communities. Obviously, the Florida Jewish communities is much larger than the Houston Jewish community, but that has created a level of identification and interaction with these events that transcends and surpasses some of the identification we feel for events that occur in further or far-off locations which aren't necessarily immediately integrated with Jewish communities. Perhaps that offset shouldn't exist as universal inhabitants of our planet we should sense calamities of this nature whether they affect Jews or not but certainly it's to be expected that although we identify across the board with any human suffering it hits home more when there are people you know places you visited um, communities you, you could have lived in or friends of yours live in And it makes us wonder about how a religious person responds, especially on the eve of Yom Hadin, of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, to events such as hurricanes. Now, I have to acknowledge, I record many, many shirim. This is probably the shir I'm most uneasy about recording. On the one hand, there's a part of me that wants to share, even from afar, and obviously those who are closer to the events, probably should update or adjust my sentiments, my feelings towards theirs, given their proximity, even if it's not proximate to the path of the hurricane, but just more engaged in the events rather than viewing them from 6,000 miles away. But certainly in Oved Hashem, someone of deep and overarching religious consciousness processes every event through a religious lens. However, it's very dangerous to convert experiences which cause human pain and suffering and exact the human toll at a traumatic and an emotional existential level to immediately flee to the cloak of ideology. What does this mean for us? What lessons can we learn? What are the symbolisms? It's very, very insensitive. It's very uncouth. It's not just is it inappropriate. It's, it's religiously uh, despicable. Human beings are suffering. I remember a horrible story that I heard. It scarred me. In the moment I heard it, September 11th, um, a friend of mine told me that he had a child in yeshiva in Israel. And hours after the attack, evidently, this could be, uh, I, I hope it isn't true, I hope it's probably just broken communication, one of the rebellion gathered the boys, and hours after the attack was delivering a diatribe against the ills and evils of capitalism and Yitzhahara and 
There are people literally having their lives snuffed out on tons of concrete, saying goodbye to their loved ones on dying cell phones, and you're dancing on their blood, or exploiting this moment for an ideological point, ideological points. I feel very, very uncomfortable, and I, I want to make it obviously very clear that the primary response is not ideological or theological or what are the lessons and how do we process, but trying as best we can. First of all, those who are in position to offer material support, and there's just been an incredible amount of leadership and, and communal assistance and selflessness across the board, at least that to which I've been exposed. Those that can offer moral support, philos, obviously. Um, connecting with people who are in harm's way, letting them know that we're aware of their challenges and, and standing side by side as best we can from afar. But nonetheless, in a broader scale, these are larger events that have to be processed through the lens of religion. I'm uneasy for a second reason, because I see there are very important salient, seminal messages about religion, our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our own self-perception, which events of this nature elicit or evoke. But that's a far cry from some repugnant statements that sometimes people make as if these events are a punishment or a divine retribution for certain errors in human experience, human conduct, religious performance. That's not just morally repugnant, it's intellectually bankrupt to play God and to presume to be your dad, Das Elio, as filthy Bilam did. And not just filthy, uh, personally filthy, morally filthy, intellectually. So, to draw an idea or a message from an event only means to sense certain realities and truths that are always extant but that events such as this disclose and disrobe, rather than saying that this is an event that is a divine interjection to deliver a punishment to a particular group, culture, or people. It's a very, very slim and subtle difference, but an absolutely crucial one. It's not a divine punishment in a way that we can telegraph or associate chas v'shalom. But there may be messages about our overall interaction with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and religious perceptions that should be understood and appreciated under, so to speak, typical routine conditions, which sometimes are not. And these events are helpful beyond, obviously, the tragedy. It can be called helpful, but these events enable us to see certain truths that are more transparent under these conditions. So with those two disclaimers and caveats, and they're very important ones, and it it would really pain me very much to hear that people didn't understand how difficult and delicate this type of shear is. On the one hand, I really desire to share some of my thoughts. On the other hand, should not be interpreted as escaping to ideological conversation at the cost of human suffering, nor should it be interpreted as assigning causality to these events and, and casting them as penal or interventionist. But I do think that it reminds us of three or four important ideas, some of which are universally true and one of which is extremely timely. Firstly, and this is probably a point that many have spoken, articulated, thought of, 
is on the one hand, it reminds us of our fragility, of our vulnerability, of our dependence. We live in an era of presumed infallibility, invincibility, um, self-capacity. We've rendered a world in which we're far less vulnerable to the cataclysms and, so to speak, caprice of nature in the way that ancient man was. And these types of destabilizing events, which rock our world and transform our world, provide healthy reminders, ideas that are very simple and obvious, but fundamental, and ideas that we best adhere to and heed on a day-to-day basis, even in the absence of large-scale demonstrations or divine exhibitions. As part of that, we realize that as difficult as some of these events seem and as foreboding as they are for some people, we're not apocalyptic in that sense that we feel the world's headed for disastrous, calamitous self-implosion. We obviously have environmentalist responsibilities to preserve this masterpiece that HaKadosh Baruch Hu entrusted to us as stewards, the Ovdo Shomra. But we're not doomsday prophets expecting asteroid collisions, global warning to engulf the earth in some endless tidal wave of tsunami. HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised Noach already in Parachas, Aud Kol Yemei Haaretz, Zerah V'Katsir V'Kor V'Chom V'Kaitz V'Charaf Yom V'Lalei Lo Yishvosu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu already promised Noach effectively that the types of flooding and uh, global collapse that Noach witnessed and Noach experienced would not occur again. Lo Osifod L'Hakos is Kol Chai Kasher Asisi. Kodesh Baruch Hu is a Melech HaRachamim, and he was a Melech HaRachamim in the days of Noah. But at that early stage of history, man's complete degeneracy led to a collapse of the world order, and the world had to be reset. But Kodesh Baruch Hu realized, Yetzir Leif Adam Ram Minurav, Lois Hifod Lahakos. Or as David HaMelech says, and this is a Pasuk we'll read on Rosh Hashanah, as part of the Psuki Malchia, Hashem Malach Yeos Lavesh, Lavesh Hashem Ozis Hazar. Astikon Tevel, Kodesh Baruch Hu, distilled the earth, the planet Baltimore. It won't collapse. So to extrapolate from these very, very challenging events as if we're facing environmental disaster and the world is headed for complete uh, dissolution is to ignore HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Haftachat Noach, to ignore the Rahmanis HaKadosh Baruch Hu has on his brios, and not in any way neglectful of our environmental responsibility. And if global warming is, is indeed an area of concern, then every Oved Hashem has to, again, we're not necessarily on the committees that deal with global warming, but in our, in our views and in our personal conduct and in our attempts to conserve energy and not to waste energy or not to cause undue harm to the environment. Uh, it's certainly uh, part of our Vodas Hashem, Leovdol Shomra. As part of that, even our, our stability and our vulnerabilities exposed by these events. These have happened before, I think. Um, um, the, the September 11th events I'll mention, which, which really happened 16 years ago, and almost to the date, September 10th, 2017, that I'm recording this year. Somehow those events were triggered by Memshela Zadon, murderers, terrorists, so... The notion that HaKadosh Baruch creates a world of free will and that free will can be abused and exploited and marshaled by 
corrupt individuals to commit crimes, despite the destabilization and the reminder of our vulnerability, we, we've been through that movie before. We've lived through that script before. It's not, although Akadosh Baruch Hu enables it, it's not seen as a, much of a directly divine message, but reminder. Whereas a, a natural, an event of nature, a meteorological event, is completely in an uninhibited, unqualified fashion dispatched by Akadosh Baruch Hu. As part of that experience, I'm just looking at the coverage of these events and the massive and, and well-placed attempts, especially in Florida, with, with the warning they received to force evacuation, to um, prepare for the events, um, to relocate people, to stock up on goods, to migrate to safer areas, to build Category 5 buildings capable of withstanding hurricane strong winds um, it reminds us that this is the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we should thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us the ingenuity the scientific intuition and skills and uh, the, the political socio-political ability to create sustainable forms of government in which the rule of law is adhered to in which governments attend to, to the needs of their people and, and not just in a responsive form but in a proactive form this isn't something to be taken for granted on Rosh Hashanah, we acknowledge HaKadosh Baruch Hu as the Mamlich Melachim, Velo HaMelucha. HaKadosh Baruch Hu dispatches political ability. And although we, many people feel, I think, legitimately that we're, we're suffering through a bit of a political um, crisis of leadership exhibited in many Western democracies, but we still appreciate the rule of law, not just uh, from a political standpoint, but from a socioeconomic and moral standpoint, the fact that we build even cities that are built near the ocean lines are built in fashions with an eye and a sensitivity to um, weather events and, and with the economic ability to create weather immune or at least weather stable in many cases that, um, again in no way to cheapen or trivialize or diminish the hardships and difficulties being faced by so many in the Florida Peninsula but in no way to diminish the the 60 or so deaths which I think occurred in Houston or the 30 or so deaths which occurred on the Caribbean islands and we hope there will be no more death but when similar events happen in third world countries the death toll rises into the hundreds and sometimes thousands um, and again this isn't said with any degree of triumphalism but we should be proud of ourselves and thankful to our Kodesh Baruch Hu that Shechalak Michach Maso the Brios that HaKadosh Baruch Hu enabled us with this ability to track these storms, predict their trajectory, prepare for them, both far in advance in the way we design and construct our cities, as well as in response to the immediate threat, creating um, escape routes and, and opportunities. And certainly, um, again, this is, this is a human, universal experience, but certainly to incredible, incredible sense of Jewish community and both internally as well as globally, I'm sure. Even in the local sense, uh, I hope and I, I assume, and again, this isn't said with any degree of discrimination, but it's just said with a deep degree of pride that a Jew belongs to a community and a community attends to the needs of its constituent members, and I'm assuming that, and hoping and believing that most of the Jews who belong to strong and firm communities 
have been afforded shelter and care and supervision and, and again a real testament to all the forms of leadership that have d- displayed true courage and true selflessness and true uh, work and, um, and, then, and then of course all the stories we've heard about uh, again I'm, I'm further from the scene than, farther from the scene than most but seeing how even the local communities in the vicinities of these hard hit areas such as the Dallas community and how they responded under their leadership to the needs of the Houston community and I'm sure there are others. These are just the ones that I've glimpsed through social media and various uh, friends' reports and now witnessing how both the local communities to Miami as well as the broader Atlanta community, just it, it reminds us of the value of community and it reminds us of why Judaism is a community-pivoted experience and, and it creates robust communities that escort us through life, through its summit points of joy and celebration and through its, uh, the way we confront as human beings we pull our talents we confront disaster so it's, it's uh, that first issue of, of realizing our own instability and our lack of of, uh, of invulnerability the fact that we're vulnerable and more fragile than we think it's an important point I'm sure people have spoken about it but it has to be viewed from somewhat uh, different angles it shouldn't be in any way a harbinger of some gloomy prospect for future inhabitants of this earth and and also we have to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we're living in 2017 and man in general has equipped himself with the ability to mitigate these disasters and this is completely in the rest of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and that's the challenge of our world to be so in, uh, empowered and to reach such technological prowess and yet to maintain the, the sense of vulnerability and, and need and dependence Speaking more specifically about the hurricane experience, um, I, I thought a lot of the Pasuk in Tehillim Parak Kufdalet. This is, of course, Baruchinachi Es Hashem, a Parak we recite commonly in Rosh Chodesh. Some recite it Shabbos after Mincha. It's a very poetic and positive Parak about the coordination and the synchronization of nature. It describes animals filing in and out, receiving their food, nocturnal creatures making way for daytime creatures, fog fertilizing mountains, rivers coursing through their properties. Almost as if, imagine, nature is one large timepiece with the various gears working in sync. And this, of course, describes the synchronization and coordination and choreographing of their Vodashlala. One of those psukim is particularly relevant for our experience. Kvol Samta Bal Yavorun Bal Yeshuvun Lechasel Saretz Hashem creates a boundary between the oceans and between the land. The world was initially covered in water and the Kodesh Baruch Hu announced Yikavu HaMayim Mesere HaYabasha So the fact that we have dry land under our feet is not, so to speak, a given. It's not built into the original state of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's first creation. But it's a divine adjustment. And it's a divine adjustment which requires the application of an impassable boundary. Gvul Samta Balya Avor, and it should not surge, to use modern language, it should not encroach. Balya Shuvon, but it shouldn't return, suggesting that waters flooding dry land 
is not a novel event, it's just a return to original conditions, L'chasel Saretz. Standing at the beach, under normal conditions, witnessing high tides and low tides, the crashing waves, whether it be against the quiet sands or the stiff cliffs and rocks, traveling and visiting the fjords and other ocean settings where land and ocean encounter one another, you're reminded of the fury of the sea, the delicacy of that boundary, and it's a reminder of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's very, very delicate choreography and balance which Hashem introduced into our ecosystem and into our natural world. And certainly modern studies of survival of the fittest and ecological balance and ecosystems reminds us of how delicate food chains are and how delicate ecospheres are. Ecospheres. So first of all, it helps us appreciate HaKadosh Baruch Hu's ability, obviously, not just to create, but to create multiplicity and calibrate the multiplicity. It reminds us in a general sense of our own ability to fuse multiple seemingly contradictory even elements of our personality and to mimic HaKadosh Baruch Hu by creating that balance. And I'm already two weeks into teaching the first group of boys who came to Yeshiva and they've already realized that with a few exceptions, perhaps you are Shemayim, humility, and long-tempered, every trait is dangerous in excess, even religious traits. And I tell them, the only one word that I want you to excel at, unlimitedly and unqualified, is balance. They ought to balance, and it's very hard to, especially at a young age, to realize the appeal and the meaning, the value of balance. And this is a Pasuk that provides a ecological metaphor <coughs> for human balance. But of course, it's not just a moral statement about human behavior and human, or about human identity. When Korach challenges Moshe Rabbeinu's title, he wants to become the leader, the priest. Moshe tells Korach, very strange word, Boker, in the morning. Then say machar, which is the typical delay tactic. Aaron tells him machar, chaglashem machar. Moshe uses a much more um, radiant word. Boker, morning. Rashi comments, based on the Medrash, that Moshe is essentially pleading with Korach to respect boundaries. HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates differentiation. And heroism as a human being doesn't always entail choosing or selecting our framework that sometimes is delivered to us by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Often it's always is. But our heroism is excelling within that framework and filling it with content. And Moshe's implicit message is conveyed by the term Bokeh. Morning can't become night. Night can't become morning. There isn't a moral statement. This isn't discriminatory. This isn't condescending. Rish Baruch chose a certain role for the sun and a certain role for the moon. And in many ways, because the moon was unable to accept its role as an equal, it was diminished in its capacity. And every night, and its muted light, reminds us of the dangers and the, the, the um, folly of trying to blur some of these boundaries. And if the quintessential boundary 
is the boundary between dry land and ocean, between Yam and Yabasha, then it reminds us, again, chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, not as a as divine punishment, chalila v'chas. But it's just as a reminder, have we created a world in which we've questioned so many of the boundaries that are natural, gender, of identity, uh, these are very sensitive issues, and each person listening, each person speaking, would be, I guess, that too, too um, um, self-righteous. To, but are, are, are we in the world of endless experimentation, in which human experience and human exploration, human expression, has started to encroach and trespass upon certain boundaries that Akadosh Baruch Hu demands? Not just demands, but facilitates because he creates differences in his world, and it's the coordination and interaction of those differences while maintaining the boundaries that enriches our world and our experience. And sometimes our calibration is off, it's always off. Every revolution alters the paradigm and alters the calibration of that paradigm. So revolutions are such um, violent and um, um, uh, riotous events because they, they shift paradigms until the paradigm, not just a new paradigm can enter, but the balance. Paradigms have to be balanced. So it made me think a lot witnessing these receding ocean that I just saw today that in some of the Caribbean islands actually after the water encroached the land and flooded and surged over the land, the hurricane was so strong that it drew the ocean water back into the ocean so that it seemed as if miles of area that had previously been covered by ocean were now dried. And, and, and weathermen and, and local authorities were warning residents not to wade or not to walk into these dry beds because the waters would return with fury and sometimes with even greater, greater surge. But I thought a lot about that process. And of course, the water and the sea are a metaphor for us. And it's this value that we're sensitive enough towards in balancing all of values, the barrage of values and needs and challenges that modernity has hurled at us. Of course, it reminded me of the fact that Am Yisrael compared not just to the stars and not just to the dirt, Kafar Haaretz, but Kichol Hayam. And to many, it may seem as if dirt and sand are similar. And why would they have to be compared at once to dirt and at once to sand? But one of the reasons that they're compared to sand as opposed to dirt is because we have played that role as serving as the barrier to the encroaching seas, if the seas are a metaphor for human evil and totalitarian regimes and, and ideologies that have persecuted man. And we're the vanguard and we're the barrier, we're the defense um, for an entire world. We take moral stands, we've introduced monotheism, we've blunted any attempts to um, dilute or, or eliminate monotheistic view and, and we're trying very hard to project a moral profile even in a country in Eretz Yisrael in which 
we're sometimes challenged to very, very delicate moral predicaments and, and moral conditions. And we feel as if the rising waters of our world are um, gaining in their fury. And Amisrael's role in protecting humanity against some of these ideologies and movements because we take stands when others aren't prepared to take stands, that role has been further highlighted. So, again, to suggest in an event of this nature would occur in order to deliver that message. We don't understand our Kaddish Baruch Hu's will or, or wisdom or decisions, but certainly existentially responding, living as a human being, seeing these events, and again, obviously not just running to the world of metaphor and ideology, but processing it as a human being, and after helping and trying your best to dive in and help, but reminds us that we live in a world in which the boundaries, not just um, experientially as human beings, but historically in the role of Jewish people, is under siege in ways that it hasn't been in the past, and we hope that we'll continue to, as we say, hold the line. So beyond the sense of human vulnerability and susceptibility, the boundaries have been blurred, the boundaries have been encroached. We thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the very delicate way in which the world is always coordinated, in which the seas which should naturally overcome the dry land typically do not. And yet we realize that boundaries and living within certain profiles and predetermined identities and excelling within those identities, as hard as they may seem, and pathways of behavior, is something that human beings have to accept, rather than recreating and thereby tearing the divine fabric asunder and over, uh, overwhelming these boundaries that Ekadosh Baruch intended. And then there are two things that made me think about Tshuva and Rosh Hashanah. One obvious, one a little less obvious. Pasig and Amos attributes the following role to the shofar. Ha'itaka shofar bi'ir, bi'am lo yecheradu. Indeed, the shofar evokes imagery of Haramariya and the Akedah. Indeed, the shofar reminds us of the Beis HaMikdash, Bechatzatzos v'kol shofar, re'lifnei ha'melech Hashem. Indeed, the shofar Appoints and coronates the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Tiku b'chodesh shofar b'kesteliyam chagenu. Indeed, according to the Rambam, it's a, an alarm clock, a wake-up call. Uru uru yishenem yishinaschem akitzu mitir demaschem. But Amal suggests that it should cause fear. Do we fear the shofar? Most of us don't. In part because we live in a modern world in which. We've not just eliminated fear, but we have turned it into a caricature. We've used the word in so many different contexts that it's lost all meaning. In part because we've converted the shofar into a repertoire or reservoir, excuse me, of different imagery. And how many people sense that shaking shudder? In the same way that the angels in Shemayim, as the fear of Unasanatopia have described, feel that shudder. 
So what Amos describes in Paragimel rhetorically, of course, hearing the shofar will close a shutter. Sadly enough, we have an answer to that question. The answer is no. I think a lot of people now sense the shudder, now sense the, 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 the trembling of Yom Hadid. And as I mentioned before, it's in ways that obviously we don't expect and we hope to avoid the type of calamity that occurred September 11th prior to Rosh Hashanah and Kippur 16 years ago. We hope that in Mir Hashem we have the expectation that the human toll will be overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly limited, we hope. Even the property damage, we hope, will be limited. But again, somehow, though that caused the fear, it also caused anger, a sense of revenge, a sense of, not revenge for revenge's sake, but, as I said before, the, the agenda of Kisavir Memshelas Zadom Minaris, there's a targeted enemy, the source, and the reason, and had to be dealt with and eliminated. And we're still in the process of facing that enemy. But this divinely introduced shudder doesn't cause anger, doesn't cause it's pure. It's a pure shudder. And in some ways, it's not incidental that the hurricane season, by and large, occurs during this pre-Rosh Hashanah period. Hurricanes, by and large, occur based on the offset between waters, ocean waters that are extremely hot, atmospheric weather that is a bit colder and that Differential in temperature causes the swell of a hurricane. And this, again, not a scientist and a meteorologist, but this is the baseline of a hurricane. Those conditions occur after the oceans have been heated in the entire summer period. Again, with all apologies to southern hemisphere dwellers, Torah is written in a northern hemisphere context. Rosh Hashanah is an end of summer experience end of harvest, end of summer, end of work before beginning the next year. I always chuckle when people ask why do we eat pomegranates on Rosh Hashanah? And there's a litany of very interesting reasons based on Makaros. But anyone who's lived in Eretz Yisrael understands full well why we eat Rimonim and pomegranates on Rosh Hashanah. Because it's the last fruit and certainly the last of the seven fruits to ripen. The first of the Shiva Minim to ripen is barley, so we begin the season by offering a Mincha Saomer from barley. And the final fruit to ripen is after the grapes, is the pomegranates. So we conclude the agricultural process by consuming the final fruit, the, the latest ripening fruit on Rosh Hashanah. And the shofar is a symbolic uh, horn of liberation. We're now liberated from agricultural needs, even for a month or two until we have to plant again in Cheshvan, in Kislev, and now is the time to both celebrate our success, Bikurim uh, is ending, Sukkot's time, at least Minatara, but also to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to not just thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but retreat from the heavy toll of work and retreat inwards to a more spiritual place, a more spiritual uh, condition. So, the fact that hurricanes occur when they occur, they're seasonal. Um, to a degree, typhoons, uh, again, tornadoes is more of a uniquely American experience, but the hurricane season is timed to a degree in many ways as not just something which happens to occur for 
reasons unbeknownst to us, but because it's the end of the summer, in the same way that Tisha B'Av is an end of a summer experience. And when these events and when these hurricanes occur, we shudder. In a way that the shofar was intended to create. So, if one of our associations with these events is to feel the full force of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and there are other prakim in, in Tanakh which describe the full force of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that's irrepressible. I'm reminded of, let's say, Perak, which we recite, Kuth Mem Zayin, every day. Um, it speaks about Hashem's morality, Rofei L'Shvur Elev, it speaks about Hashem's historical intervention, Bonei Yishalayim Hashem, Shabachi Yishalayim Es Hashem, Ki Chizak Rechei Shorayich. It speaks about the boundaries of peace, Asam Gvulech Shalom, which in many ways evokes the boundaries of the waters. But the end of the parak describes the force of Hashem as exhibited through nature. Hanosein Shalai Katzamer spreads the snow. Kifar, the Aishi Kaifer, Yefazer is dispersed as dust. Mashlech Karcho Chafitim sends his ice. Kufnei Karaso before his winds, his cold winds, Miyamo, Gishvach Devarmi, I'm saying, so it's not about hurricane style winds, but it's about cold and heat and changing in, in the irrepressible, inexorable march of the two different, as we call them, fronts. I'm sure this is something that many people, both experiencing it firsthand or from afar, and it's a healthy, a healthy manner, a healthy manner to be able to process these events. And if we're able to approach Rosh Hashanah with a bit of charedu, yachredu, charada, put it into today's jargon, if we all become charedim, if we all learn to tremble, and certainly it's appropriate and fitting for Rosh Hashanah. The final issue, having spoken about the instability and fragility that we're reminded of, but in a more complex fashion, the metaphor of the sea and the land and the boundaries of shame instills in our world, fear and shuddering that the chauffeur may have created, but possibly no longer creates as much of, and the shudder that has been recreated by these events, there's a fourth element. A couple of years ago, during the tsunami in Japan, I was interviewed by a radio station. I don't know how they got to me, uh, where they have a radio, was it international? And they asked me for my views about the tsunami. So, of course, I responded primarily as, as I prefaced this year not even being able to imagine the suffering and the challenges and really any other statement would be would be not just inappropriate not just morally insensitive just ugly but I concluded my comments I forget the I had a couple other comments in between by saying that it was um, very very enlightening to me to look at satellite imagery of the islands that were affected by the tsunami before and after and this is something which only the modern world can provide an appreciation of. And of course, we've seen these satellite pictures beforehand buildings, roads, phone wires, boats, buildings, cities. 
and afterwards, a complete wipeout, as we would say, a complete whiteout. The land had been completely shaven, shaved of its previous topography. And how long did this take? 15 seconds, 20 seconds, depending upon the tsunami. And it just reminds us that as much as we feel we live in a fixed world with certain set realities, that world can change in an instant. That world can change in a heartbeat. And it's not just about sensing vulnerability and fragility and dependency, but about reminding ourselves that we live in a world that isn't as static as it seems. The world has become so processed and established and institutionalized that some people feel disempowered to make change. And more importantly, some people have a difficult time imagining prophetic change. I talked about this over Shabbos. Over Shabbos, I was hosted by the community of Hashemunayim in Israel. I spoke about the Rambam adopting the position of Rebbe Eliezer, that the final ruler will only be occasioned by prior tshuva, based on the Gemara Sanhedrin, which is a very frightening prospect that our return is not assured, it would seem, if it's contingent upon tshuva. But then the Rambam concludes, that despite the fact that our world, our Jewish world, doesn't appear to be a world tilted, oriented, advancing towards mass tshuva, the world could change in an instant. And when we dive in Rosh Hashanah, we don't view our world solely through empirical or rational lenses. We've become very rational and we become very empiricist. We're landlocked in a world beyond imagination in which we just accept our reality for what it is and assume it's perpetual. And in this respect, the Jew has to be apocalyptic. Not apocalyptic about the environmental catastrophes, but apocalyptic about the type of world that we dive in for that could change in an instant. And these types of events remind us of the inner dynamism. It's a poor word to use because dynamism is normally associated with productivity and growth and creativity and these are certainly not events that would fit or be suited to those types of thoughts. But the world we see is just the world we currently inhabit. But that world could change in a flash. That world can change in a heartbeat, in an instant. And it's sad to watch people who have accumulated so, so much and built so assiduously and, and built communities and built businesses and built homes and built realities that, sadly enough, are washed away in an instant. Obviously, we're thankful that in most cases, in the overwhelming majority of cases, it's the loss of property, which can always be replaced, but at great financial expense and at great psychological and communal expense. And these are not things to take lightly. But zooming out, so to speak, from the human component, to remind ourselves not to be so empiricist, not to allow ourselves to sheepishly submit to our reality as the reality, or the only reality within which we have to operate and succeed, but to live the apocalyptic life where a Jew divides his consciousness into two. He lives the reality in which he's placed, tries to 
embrace it, redeem it, advance it, succeed in it. But he always dreams geographically of a different world, of Eretz Yisrael. Theologically of a different world, of Vieda, Kalpol, Kiata, Pialto, Veomar, Kal Asher, Nishama, Biapo, Hashem, Mulke, Yisrael, Melech. The world in which Vahay Hashem, Melech, Al Kol Haaretz, Biyamu, Yashem, Echad, Ushmo, Echad. And sometimes where we feel that we live in a world which denies these options and blunts these possible changed horizons, the entire world as we know it is torn asunder, and we're reminded that these types of changes, these types of echipazan, are more available than we would otherwise have thought. So it's a share which I'm, again, very, very uncomfortable Submitting, I hope it's helpful for those who are looking for religious voices and religious lenses to process events rather than, again, obviously those who are living through the experience, we wish them well and wish they take every possible effort and exert every possible resource to maintain safety and well-being. But for those who are, so to speak, bystanders or spectators, not just to, to watch the events endlessly on CNN or the Weather Channel. And not even to remember how angry the Lichtenstein was during the Gulf War when some of the boys in Yeshiva climbed on top of the roof of the base matters to watch the missiles. And it's just so, there's a voyeurism that sunk so deeply and make sure that when you're watching, you're watching these events out of care and concern, not of entertainment. It shouldn't be a replacement for a sports match or, or for other types of recreation or other things. There's a very thin line between being interested and, and I would almost, almost encourage people perhaps to, to receive their information through printed text rather than visual media. As graphic as the visual media is and as as much as it augments our ability to identify, it sometimes can border on entertainment. And chas, chas, shalom, that it should turn into that type of cruelty and just dehumanizing, humiliating experience. But that being said, one of the religions, I'm sure there are many, many other religious ideas, but what is an Ovet Hashem, what is a religious-minded person meant to learn and to grow from these experiences. Again, I wish everyone who is in harm's way, safety, well-being, we're davening for you. We feel the difficulties still in Eretz Yisrael where we live through similarly vulnerable situations and we expect you to stand with us and daven for us. We certainly have those same feelings in our heart as I'm sure Jews and human beings across the world are feeling.